Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgewood and this is Lit Up. Hey Lit Up listeners, we're doing things a little differently today and we're sharing a preview of another podcast we've been enjoying and think you will too. It's called Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. Sam explores questions big and small through dialogues driven by curiosity, compassion and an abundance of research. Like Lit Up, it's a place to hear about what lights people up. Each Sunday, Sam invites actors, writers, activists, and musicians to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of our favorite interviews include talks with David Byrne, Ocean Vyong, George Saunders, Roxane Gay, and Gloria Dim. In this preview, Sam talks with the revered author, Margaret Atwood. The two spoke earlier this year around the release of Margaret's new essay collection, burning questions. She talks about the day she met her husband of 46 years, the writer Graham Gibson who passed away at the age of 85 in 2019. Then they discuss The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret's role in the debate around the writer as a political agent, and the power of poetry. You'll hear a reading from one of her poems at the end too. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Margaret Atwood as much as we did. You can hear the full episode and more from Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso at talkeasypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Margaret Atwood, 
Nice to meet you. Pleasure to be here. How are you doing right now? Right now, I'm in a snow-covered wood, which yesterday had a lot of rain and froze solid. So we have ice covered with snow. And my immediate problem is how to get up an icy snow-covered hill. But we've got that solved. Don't worry. If I were in your situation, <laughs> I would go tumbling down almost immediately. I know it. Well, then you would pick yourself back up and figure out how to get up the hill. <laughs> I have faith in you. <laughs> well, you just met me, but I appreciate already having faith in me. In the introduction of your new book, Burning Questions, you write both personally and globally. I, I want to start with the passage here. In 2012, my partner, Graham Gibson, was diagnosed with dementia. What's the prognosis? He asked. It will go slowly. It will go quickly. It will stay the same. Or we don't know, he was told. It was much the same with the state of the world. It was a restless, unsettled period without any single overwhelming catastrophe. People were fearful, but their fear was unfocused. We were holding our breath. We were carrying on. We were pretending things were normal, but whiffs of a change for the worse were already in the air. Now that we've had an overwhelming catastrophe. Well, a couple of them, yeah, right. A couple of them. Who's counting? <laughs> Do you believe we've stopped pretending things are normal? Have we become more focused? We've become more focused, but you have to pretend things are normal to a certain extent just to get through daily life. So running and screaming in all directions isn't actually that helpful. I've divided the book into five periods, and that would have been second or so. So we'd had the big financial meltdown. We'd had 9-11 in 2012. We were recovering from the meltdown, the financial meltdown, but it did seem to be one of those eye of the hurricane, lull before the thunderstorm periods of time. So then came a lot of other stuff that we are now dealing with. There were unfocused inklings of it even then. What does that mean, unfocused inklings? <laughs> it means something's going on, but we don't exactly know what. I don't know whether you watch the weather a lot, but once upon a time, and I hate to break this to you, there was no internet. <laughs> you got the weather in, in other ways. You got it on the radio. But if you were in a place without radio or television, you watched the signs. How red is the sunset? How red is the sunrise? What direction is the wind coming from? And what is that I hear in the distance? I think you just made some breaking news here that there was life before the internet. Well, life, I mean, it depends how you define life. I mean, it was proto-life. <laughs> I want to go to 1969 where The Edible Woman is published. You have a story that you recount in five visits to the word hoard about the first book signing you have. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was in a department store called the Hudson's Bag Company. And the publicist, I think it was her first week on the job. I think she probably figured it would be a good idea to have a table near the escalator with people going up and down. But I was there sitting at a table with this book called The Edible Woman in the men's sock and underwear department. Did I sell any books? Two. Did I frighten a lot of men? Yes. <laughs> they, came, they came on their lunch hour to pick up their socks 
or jockey shorts, took one look at this, and it being winter, they had their galoshes on. I could hear their galoshes <laughs> scuttling, running in the other direction. I think anytime you can scare men, you've succeeded in some way. I don't scare men who have a sense of humor. Come on, they're not that, that frightened of me. Unless they step out of line, then that's another story. Do you want to recount some of those? No. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a copy of your book with you? I do. Let's go to page 447. One year after that book signing incident, you meet Graham Gibson, who would later become your husband. In the foreword of his two novels, Perpetual Motion and Gentleman's Death, you describe that first meeting. Would you mind reading it? Yes. It's not the first meeting. It's the first time we sat down to talk. The first meeting was at a party that the writers had thrown for this poet called Milton Acorn, who was, as we now know, bipolar. We didn't know that at the time, but he was very depressed. He was actually a pretty good poet. He hadn't won the one literary award that you could win at that time. There was only one. Look how they proliferated. So we threw a party for him, and we we gave him a, an award that we had made up. So it was a cheer-up Milton Acorn party, and it was 1969. Neither Graham nor I had won that award either. So I just said I thought his book was pretty good. And, of course, what would endear me more in his eyes? I certainly wasn't trying to start anything there. I was otherwise occupied, but... That was the first meeting. The first time I sat down to talk with Graham Gibson in 1970, I read his hand, as I was in the habit of doing for strangers in those reckless days. Everything is connected to everything else, I said sagely. Your intellectual and creative selves are continuous with your lifeline and your fate line. It's all one. And so it was, and so it would be. Now, don't ask me to read your hand because I wouldn't be able to see it clearly enough. But should we ever meet in person, I would be happy to do that for you. For the next time we do it, I, I will ask. <laughs> you write in such vivid detail that first encounter. What does it make you think of that's not on the page? Oh, you want me to go back, back, back in time and have a weepy fit. I didn't say anything of the sort. No, of course you didn't. <laughs> that's what would happen. Graham said a very good thing to our daughter fairly late in his life. He said, if she hadn't met me, your mother would still have been a writer, but she wouldn't have had as much fun. That is entirely true. One of the byproducts of writing The Handmaid's Tale is that many people sort of asked you to be an activist or a writer as political agent. Where are you at on that these days? Well, I went into that in my, my book on writing. As I say, you got these alternating periods. So the 30s was heavily in favor of, of artists being political agents. The trouble with that is if you if you get a government in that's too interested in, in the arts or indeed in the scientists, you get somebody like Stalin trying to control everything, tell people what kind of not only what kind of art they should have, but also what kind of science they should have. So artists are always vacillating back and forth between these two things. Are you going to be a art for art's sake a purist, or are you going to be 
an activist artist, which risks your producing a lot of agitprop and also being subject to the dictates of whatever movement or group you are supposed to be serving. So it goes all the way back to how do you buy the cheese sandwiches that you need to sustain your material being while you produce your no doubt excellent art? So who's paying for this? And there are a load of choices. A patron. You know, patrons. Here's some money. Make some art. You can inherit money, get born into money. You can hook up with the partner who's got money. So let's call that the having money option. You're giggling a lot. I'm enjoying your company. <laughs> I, I pray the feeling is mutual. Oh, it is. Yes. I, I, I love the opportunity to be a garrulous windbag. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's two. The third is get a day job, or you can go to the market, which is I will sell enough of my art to support myself. And those are the only options. So what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> more and more in the modern age, artists are being asked to make sure their work is adhering to some ideological... Yeah. So who's in that case calling the shots? Sometimes it's publishers who uh, wish to avoid controversy. Sometimes it's educational institutions because more and more artists have got day jobs that involve teaching in educational institutions. So if you don't have a day job, that's not a question. But if you don't have a day job, you do have to have a publisher. There are, however, now self-publishing options. There's quite a few of them. You can have a column on something called Substack. So the strictness of the gatekeepers is no longer so firmly in place as it once was. The Bible was censored because it had too much sex and violence in it, and a more maiden-friendly version was produced. So this has been going on for a long time. There's no religious swearing in Shakespeare, because every play that he wrote had to go through a censor. The history of publishing and the history of censorship are strewn with these battles. This feels terribly reminiscent of a passage you have in Three Tarot Cards from 2019. You say, this very moral view of literature, nothing should be published that would scandalize, was typical of the Victorian age. Do you think we're moving back towards that Victorian age? There's pluses and minus for everything. So in a democratic society, should anybody be allowed to say whatever they want, no matter how harmful to certain groups? So what are the limits on speech? And there always have been some. So we're not talking really about whether there should be no limits. We're talking about where those lines should be drawn. And this is going to go on for a while. In fact, it's probably going to go on forever until whatever mode that we're in goes too far and there's a reaction against it. And I think the real question we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of society do we want to live in? And do we want to live in a liberal democracy? And if we don't want to live in a liberal democracy, what do we want to live in? If an autocracy the autocrats get to say whatever they like, and other people don't get to say anything. Do you want that? No, you don't. If in an anarchy, everybody says everything, but since infrastructure has broken down its total chaos and nothing works, 
And if you want to see what that looks like, you can read a book called The Fall of Berlin by Anthony Beevor. Periods of total chaos produce warlords. Totalitarianisms produce samizdat. Things get said, but under the covers. So I'm old enough to have actually been behind the Iron Curtain when there was one. That was Berlin, 1984, right? Berlin, East Germany. Berlin was West Berlin. So that what that was that little spot of not Iron Curtain that was surrounded by it. So um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Checkpoint Charlie, all of that was going on. But I visited East Berlin. I visited Czechoslovakia, and I visited Poland. Or I should say, waited. And in that time, you were writing The Handmaid's Tale. Am I right? Yes. Yes. How interesting. How corny of me to have picked 1984. I wasn't going to fault you for it. (laughs) I I was going to give you a break. (laughs) One of the pieces I found most moving comes towards the end of the book. It was born the third week of August 2017 on a back street of Stratford, Ontario, Canada. You were walking alone. You write, slow walking leads to rumination which leads to poetry. Park benches are my friends, and it wasn't raining. Scribbling ensued. Can you read what that scribbling would eventually transform into? This is a poem called Dearly. It's an old word fading now. Dearly did I wish. Dearly did I long for. I loved him dearly. I make my way along the sidewalk mindfully because of my wrecked knees, about which I give less of a shit than you may imagine, since there are other things more important. Wait for it, you'll see. Bearing half a coffee in a paper cup with, dearly do I regret it, a plastic lid, trying to remember what words once meant. Dearly. How was it used? Dearly beloved. Dearly beloved, we are gathered. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in this forgotten photo album I came across recently. Fading now, the sepias, the black and whites, the color prints, everyone so much younger. The Polaroids. What is a Polaroid, asks the newborn, newborn a decade ago. How to explain. You took the picture and then it came out the top. The top of what? It's that baffled look I see a lot. So hard to describe the smallest details of how all these dearly gathered together, of how we used to live. We wrapped up garbage in newspaper tied with string. What is newspaper? You see what I mean. String, though, we still have string. It links things together. A string of pearls, that's what they would say. How to keep track of the days, each one shining, each one alone, each one then gone. I've kept some of them in a drawer on paper, those days fading now. Beads can be used for counting, as in rosaries but I don't like stones around my neck. Along this street, there are many flowers fading now because it is August and dusty and heading into fall. 
Soon the chrysanthemums will bloom, flowers of the dead in France. Don't think this is morbid. It's just reality. So hard to describe the smallest details of flowers. This is the stamen, nothing to do with men. This is a pistol, nothing to do with guns. It's the smallest details that foil translators, and myself, too, trying to describe. See what I mean. You can wander away. You can get lost. Words can do that. Dearly beloved, gathered here together in this closed drawer, fading now, I miss you. I miss the missing, those who left earlier. I miss even those who are still here. I miss you all dearly. Dearly do I sorrow for you. Sorrow, that's another word you don't hear much anymore. I sorrow dearly. What do you think of reading that now? I'm glad my knees are better. How about that? <laughs> that answer you just gave, it strikes me as the cookie response in Old Babes in the Woods. It is absolutely the cookie response, and I'm really good at it. I can tell you're very good at it. There's another response, though. Well, the thing about poems is they're for the listener. They're not actually for the poet. And the people who need them will find the ones that they need. I need other people's poems. That's how it goes. You write, uh, as for the why of poetry. Indeed, after the poem has passed out of the hands of the ones who's written it down, and after that person who may have departed from time and space and be wafting around as atoms, who else can a poem belong to? For whom does the bell toll? For you, dear reader. Who is the poem for? Also for you. Who else could it be? Well, as we leave, I, I have to thank you for the poem, yes, the books, a plenty, all the words you've given that were not for you, but were for us. <laughs> and farewell. Have a good life. <laughs> you too, Miss Atwood. You too. That was a preview of Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, a podcast from Pushkin Industries. You can hear more of Talk Easy wherever you get your podcasts.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.